0: Greetings, Future Fossils. That word has taken on a strange new pallor over the last few weeks as the world has descended into crisis and, in some cases, panic around the uh, coronavirus pandemic. My offices at my day job are closed for weeks. My brother is out of school for presumably the rest of the semester. I'm sure all of you are experiencing the knock-on effects of this as people take, in some cases, much overdue precautions and implement social distancing measures. I had a scheduled episode for this week, uh, my conversation with novelist Alex Shakar about his work and The themes in his work about cultural appropriation and consumerism, neurotheology, and a bunch of other really amazing stuff. But it seemed kind of tone deaf to put that out this week instead of taking a moment to process some of my own thoughts on what we're living through together right now. And at the recommendation of a friend of mine, a a painter and collaborator, Jamie Gaviola, I'm going to make this a solo cast in which I share some resources with you and how I'm making sense of this in my own life. You know, we had to cancel my daughter's first birthday party coming up next week because we had family flying in from all over the country. And uh, I'm actually supposed to be at South by Southwest right now, (laughs) you know, presenting on behalf of the Santa Fe Institute, which I was really looking forward to and meeting with members of the Long Now Foundation, uh, which is a massive inspiration to this podcast, uh, really interesting people. But I mean, I guess that's the thing is that now is a chance to talk about that longer term, that long time horizon, and to look at what maybe what this moment that we're living through now collectively is going to mean for us on that longer scale, what it means looking further back. So this is really, you know, this is an opportunity, I think, to really unpack what this show is about in light of current events, which is something I've been admittedly kind of bad about uh, for the the 138 episodes so far. And maybe we're going to change that. So... There are a few themes that I've been touching on in pretty much every episode of this show that seem really important right now, and I would like to highlight them. The first is living with uncertainty. And I, you know, I probably don't have to preach this to any regular listeners of the show, but we live in a world that is vastly beyond our abilities to understand. The modern lens through which we see the world is that it can be rationally understood. It can be broken down into its parts that we will eventually arrive at some grand unified understanding. But the more we learn about the evolutionary conditions of our own perception and cognition, the more we learn about the thermodynamic and metabolic demands of thought and of perception, the trade-offs that our brains are making all the time about where we direct our attention because how we encode our experiences in a way to reduce the amount of computationally intensive novelty processing required of us. There are some things that we are culturally conditioned not to notice. There are some things that our nervous systems have just habituated themselves into not noticing. And there are some things that we are incapable of noticing. This is one of the things that I talked about with David Weinberger in episode 123 about big data and the way that our narratives are only good enough and that this notion of Uh, black box AI and, you know, opaque data processing being a big issue is really nothing different from what is already true of us at the level of our own uh, neuroanatomy. So I guess what I'm saying is that, like, level one of this is that we don't actually even perceive how complex this world is. And so... In this, I'm going to reference a lot of conversations that I had for the other podcast that I host, Complexity, for the Santa Fe Institute, because this comes up time and time again on that show also. Um, I was talking with W. Brian Arthur on that show about the difference between sort of old school, modern economics and the new complexity economics. And one of the major differences is understanding that there is fundamental uncertainty in our economic models, because every actor in the system is adapting their strategies to the constantly changing strategies of the other actors. So all of us are acting on information that's about the past. All of us are responding to the past. By the time you swing at the ball, it's in a different place than it was a second ago. But that's a relatively simple mechanical system. You know, it's easy, uh, although it requires training to plot the arc of an incoming baseball. But if the baseball is adjusting its strategy in midair, then, you know, we really just have to live with... The reality of the fact that we have to make decisions under conditions of uncertainty. And in fact, uh, I recently saw a quote from uh, Dr. Mike Ryan at the World Health Organization, who said, if you need to be right before you move, you will never win. The gravest error is to be paralyzed by the fear of failure. So, you know, World health experts are advising people to move quickly and decisively in their response. But, you know, one of the problems with fear is paralyzation. And one of the things that I've really attempted to do with this show in in general is to stress that there is never a perfect answer. I think when most people talk about acting on intuition, what they really mean is not having the time to properly verify all of the things that one knows that our bodies are noticing and processing things a lot more rapidly than we can consciously attend to and analyze them. And I I really do believe that there is a sense in which intuition as a more comprehensive and embodied intelligence is, you know, a valid and important thing. At the same time, I want to stress that it is often difficult to tell the difference between a valid intuition and the voice of some anxiety or inferior impulse, and that, you know, at least in my own case, it took years to systematically A-B test these things and learn the difference between some junior brain motif that just wants a candy bar and a deeper guidance that understands that if I take one action over another, though I may not understand the benefit immediately, that there will be a benefit in the bigger picture. So that's a good point to bring up the second major issue that I see here. Another thing we've talked about a lot on the show is the issue of authority in the information age and, you know, how much as was the case after the initial invention and spread of the printing press in Europe, the advent of the 30 years war, the authority of the church as a central institution crumbled. And suddenly there was an epistemological and ontological contest for control over the reality narrative and it's very obvious that that kind of thing is going on now on the one hand i think it's good for some of these entrenched and central systems to loosen their grip on us as a species but it is a time of extraordinary trial uh, because what comes next the the better and more adaptive systems are not really in place yet. And that means dealing with a lot of turbulence and chaos. In mundane, everyday practical terms, what that means is that we're, in some sense, lucky that we are not subject to the one correct story about what is happening on this planet right now. But it also means that we are vulnerable to a lot of misinformation. Like if you think about this in terms of like geopolitical uh, dynamics, and the way that removing a demagogue from power creates a vacuum into which tribal and gang warfare can run. And there are Certainly historical cases where a tyrannical leader was, in certain ways, a better option, uh, a more secure and stable life condition for their subjects than the Game of Thrones insanity that takes place in their absence. And I think we can look at it very similarly in terms of the loss of modern progress narratives and the crumbling legitimacy of mainstream media and how this is a time when more of us are more empowered to do our own research and to arrive at a truth that would not merely be given to us by vested interests attempting to control the narrative. But at the same time, we have to be more vigilant than ever that we're not just succumbing to our political motivations to believe a particular narrative, that we're not succumbing to our cognitive biases, especially confirmation bias. There's a kind of beautiful poetry in the way that the central dogmas of the modern world collapse in order to create the Context in order to provide the opportunity for us to actually rise up to the occasion as critical thinkers, as the kind of rigorous minds that were enshrined by the philosophy of modernity. I just saw a really powerful piece about this, actually, by long-now fellow Samo Burja, who was talking about how our failure to respond collectively to the threat of the coronavirus is in part because the lack of trust that we have in our authorities. So there's this other piece of it, which is that the health and well-being of billions of people worldwide are now at stake because of this, collision between the complexity of the matter at hand, much like climate change, it's a hyper object, and it's impossible for us to see. It's not a tangible thing for the vast majority of us, especially when it hasn't really landed in our own communities. And then also this legitimacy crisis in which fewer people with good reason Uh, have been willing to put their faith in the authority and the testimony of political officials, of scientific experts. Bourgeois puts it really well in his article, which I'll, I'll link to in the show notes. He says, In the middle of the 20th century, a cadre of credentialed experts was created to replace citizens. This was a mistake. The selection mechanism for entry into this cadre selects against bravery and original thinking. Experts must be consulted, but what use is an expert unwilling to consult on a grand vision? The American system of the 2020s through the city, county, state, and up to federal level has been staffed with people who know how to speak and make themselves appear blameless, but not how to act. He goes on to say, He goes on to say, It is no victory for free society that a small segment of the online commentariat are right when all major institutions are wrong. Their prolific tweets are evidence that society has failed to harness their capacities, leaving them misapplied and our elites adrift. Don't worry about credentials or prestige. Don't worry about party affiliation. Find the brave and the smart and hand them the keys to the ignition as fast as you can. Your boss can fire them later if need be. And yes, he will fire you too. Who can afford to care about job security in a plague? So, I mean, this is what we're beginning to see. I think the adaptive response of human civilization as a whole to if you want to think about what i was just saying a moment ago about handling uncertainty you know the brains if you will of these larger institutions in which we have vested decision-making authority are clearly incapable of responding due to internal information bottlenecks due to latencies in information processing that are like the latencies of our own brains and political motivations that are like the biases of our own brains, but at a much larger scale, um, they aren't capable of pivoting to address this kind of a crisis in the time frame required. And so you know I've said a lot about on this show about how it seems, In echoing uh, uh, an Alan Moore talk, I think, when he was talking about civilization going through a phase change, you know, that we're moving from solid institutions to liquid, that we're moving into positions where people can be delegated provisional authorities based on the immediate needs of the moment, but are then not locked into place in these four-year election cycles or responding to the board of directors rather than to the needs of the entire consumer base or political constituency or the scientific data that we're getting about ecological feedback loops. Um, you know, there's a kind of a silver lining here, which is that it's getting quicker and quicker in some respects, to determine when a particular approach is not going to work. And there's an interesting fold to this, which I think is sort of the third component, major component here, which is about our ability to respond based on our available attention I think I must bring up Douglas Rushkoff's book, Present Shock, like almost every episode, if not every other episode. I had him on for episode 67 to talk about some of this. Again, to loop back on that first point about fundamental insecurity and network latency and, and our ability to respond to the world as it is rather than the world as it was last we looked, that we all suffer from the conditions of what he called present shock that, you know, you're always getting more email than you can read, more more recommendations for music than you can listen to. You have experts giving you contradictory advice and it becomes difficult to know whom to trust. Uh, I also talked about this with Hunter Motz way back in episode 39. And, you know, it, it's a recurring theme, this question of how we organize knowledge resources uh, under these conditions. But there's a, a, something interesting happening here that uh, I didn't quite foresee, which is that these challenges to our ability to attend to the world and respond to it appropriately have led to uh, a collapse of networks this is a very similar dynamic to, you know, the way that uh, an empire life cycle goes, you know that you see the regulatory networks of something like Rome or the United States stretch themselves to the point where the scale of the civilization in question no longer allows for the effective distribution of information and resources And things start to fall apart. You know, um, this is, there's a video I'm always sharing about this SFI external professor Raisa D'Souza on the collapse of networks. And I'll make sure to link that in the show notes also about cascading collapses and why they happen due to, in part, the way that what they call canalization or, you know, as networks optimize for efficiency with scale that they get to a point where the efficiency is actively inhibiting innovation and the ability of those networks to adapt to perturbation. And so these things lead to sort of domino effects, where the network comes unwoven. And in fact, the whole crisis following the invention of the printing press is a great example of this where it's sort of like the giant tree that falls in the woods, and suddenly all of the little saplings that have been unable to access the sunlight due to an impenetrable canopy of mature trees are in a race to make use of those resources. You know, again, it's like I see this time and time again. It's, you know, what rushes in to fill the gap created by these lacunae, these opportunities, you know, it's, it's uh, kind of maybe appropriate that this particular disease, at least officially originated in China, where famously, the words for crisis and opportunity are the same. In episode 23, I talked about the Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times, versus the Irish toast, may you live at the end of the world, and how I know that that means that I'm more Irish than Chinese because it's not the world, it's a world. The question of which world is ending, I think, is really key here. If it isn't obvious to everyone listening, From the political will expressed in the United States and in other countries over the last five to 10 years, people are desperate in many cases for a change that we realize that things can't continue as they are, that the retro romantic urge to respond to the complexity of our era with fundamentalism and nationalism and other regressive ideologies is, in some sense, a natural response to the reality of the situation, which is that global civilization is optimized for the wrong things, that a lot of the systems that we live within today were conceived, designed and implemented by a technocratic managerial elite in the middle of the 20th century. And again, like Bourgeois was saying in the quote that I read you a moment ago, that this implementation of a planet-scale society simply doesn't work for what it needs to do. For example, international collaboration in the containment and response to a pandemic. So... So this brings us to the fourth node in this network of ideas I wanted to present to you today, and really the, the primary thing I wanted to say, which is about a conversation I had with evolutionary biologist Nicole Crianza of Vanderbilt University for the Complexity Podcast last week. This episode dropped on the day that SFI announced that we were closing our offices for the next few weeks. And the timing was surprisingly perfect because a big part of the conversation, which again, I'll link in the show notes, was about the changes in cultural evolution that occur when two populations are separated or whether they're in infrequent communication or whether they're in frequent communication and how all of that depends on you know levels of the uh, environmental complexity and so on. One of the key insights that came out of that conversation is linked to this related insight from population biology that I've been meditating on for years, which is about how when everyone in a given uh, population—she gave an example of anthropologists who studied hunter-gatherer communities by tracking them with GPS and how— When everyone in the community is talking to everyone else, then actually innovations don't spread very well. The entire community will come to one answer for a problem that is not necessarily the best answer. But if people are only talking to their families, to small local contact networks, then everyone comes up with different solutions. And the information spreads through the network more effectively anyway. This is related to the conversation I had in Future Fossils episode 109 with Bruce Damer about the origins of life and why it seems more likely that life started in a small pond rather than in the ocean, which is this solvent that makes it very difficult for chemicals to cluster and combine in unique ways. And, you know, something very similarly... Happens with the spread of, for example, popular music. You know, Spotify bought this big data company called Echo Nest that looked at where real innovative pop hits were coming. And they did a worldwide study where they found that Iceland and the UK, Australia and New Zealand were these hot spots. And I mean that makes intuitive sense because As a musician who has lived on continental United States for my entire life, it is just so big and so diffuse, and it's very difficult unless you willingly anchor yourself down and really just create depth in your local community and saturate your local network. And then, you know, really, like, the the pop stars that I see getting big in the United States are people that really emphasized local over-national strategies for their careers and really made a name for themselves in Santa Fe or Austin or New York or wherever. And at that point, we're able to branch out. And this is confirmed by military studies on the spread of viral media and how it makes sense to first saturate a local network and then from there it diffuses from a point of concentration. So at any rate, you know, this is... So this is the point. There's, there's a silver lining here to a forced timeout <laughs> for global economy uh, for each of us. And it's happening at multiple scales simultaneously. And I want to take a little time to break this down and to look at the potential benefits. Because one of those benefits is obviously that we have climbed the wrong hill and that unless we're knocked off of that hill, the uphill only engine of our evolutionary algorithm can't actually make the decision. You know, the the efficiency tuned economy cannot actually decide that we're going to take some time out and reevaluate whether there's a better global strategy. And so we're being required to do so by enforced event cancellations and social distancing, and much as an individual human life, a pattern of unhealthy habits and behaviors is revealed and called to attention and we're forced to reckon with our unsustainable activities through a surprise illness. We're, you know, called to sit and and think about how we might be able to take better care of ourselves. Something similar seems to be going on now at the planetary scale. I asked Nicole Crianza in that episode of Complexity whether she agreed, and and she did, that the surprise benefit of this kind of a slowdown or lockdown is that a lot of people are going to be forced to come up with local solutions for systems that were truly unsustainably reliant on these very large and brittle networks that were tuned to run as fast and as cheaply as possible, but, again, lacked any kind of flexibility or adaptability, and there were no buffers built in to these just-in-time supply chains and all kinds of related systems. And that when we grow back together, whether that's in weeks or months from now, all these different systems are going to repair at different speeds. But what we're going to see is that in this downtime, people had an opportunity to step back and look at things from a different angle reflect on these things, come up with their own ways of doing them, and then those things are going to be brought together into a new synthesis. And the world after this pandemic is going to look very different, and in many cases in better ways than it did before. I think it's important that this crisis has made it clear where the faith that we have invested in leaders that care more about economic growth than they do about community well-being that that faith has been misplaced i think that this crisis is making it clear where we have other vulnerabilities due to the previously invisible networks we took for granted and that maybe we don't want to continue taking for granted I appreciate the poetry of sunlight as a disinfectant. And this term I have mentioned on the show before, I learned from Katherine Harrison daylighting. And how, you know, when we built all of these modern cities, we paved over all of these natural waterways, we turned them into sewers, and the photosynthetic processes upon which the carbon and oxygen and other chemical cycles of those areas were based were interrupted by forcing these rivers underground. You know, that, that the modern world in its now obviously reckless drive for convenience has hidden a lot of extremely important things from view. And that in daylighting, which is this process by which civil engineers, restore these natural waterways to the sunlight and restore these vital ecological cycles. You know, that can happen intentionally, uh, but it can also happen through earthquakes or other surprise and unintentional disruptions. I mean, I've never heard of a giant mature tree that's blocking all sunlight from its descendants on the forest floor to decide to take one for the team and just fall over on its own. But forest fires and beetle infestations make those kinds of decisions for the trees all the time. And at risk of sounding uh, a little more provocative than I would like, I do think that there's going to be an interesting resolution in the intergenerational conversation that was occupying us for a good bit of last year, this brawl between boomers and millennials about the unfair concentration of financial resources and political power in the hands of the older generations, and about the unsustainability of gerontocracy. But I'll just leave that there. I think the real point to stress here is, as was noted in a recent Washington Post article by Jillian Brockell, I'll also link to in the show notes, that We wouldn't have a modern theory of gravity or of optics had not the great plague of London hit while Isaac Newton was a college student that in 1665, when he was sent home by Cambridge to continue his studies and spent what he called a year of wonders, the Annus Mirabilis at home, just playing around, tinkering with experiments, boring holes in his window shutters so that a small beam could come through, he could diffract into a prism, you know, observing apples falling out of the trees in his family orchard was his time home from college that led to modern physics, as we understand it. I remember Charles Eisenstein saying a very similar thing about the 2008 financial crisis in his book, The Ascent of Humanity. And this loops back to the point about present shock and us not having the time to devote our attentions to an adequate response to the world as it is. That Eisenstein said, you know, a lot of people are getting laid off. A lot of people who have never had an opportunity to be bored, to wonder about who they are, what their purpose is, what they enjoy doing with their lives. These people are in a very admittedly difficult, painful way, being given this profound opportunity that the conditions of their economic lives have never given them, which is the leisure of free time. Eisenstein speculated that one of the benefits of Economic disruption might be that it gives us this time for reflection to take stock of what really matters, to experiment with new ways of being, living with ourselves in the world, with others. And this doubles again back to the conversation I had with Nicole Crianza because some of her work asks the question is necessity the mother of invention or is opportunity the mother of invention? I mean, we know that. Many, if not most, scientific advancements over the years were made by people because they had the free time to do so, because they were privileged and lived in luxury and were afforded the opportunity to allocate their mental resources to problems that had no immediate benefit in their solution. That blue-sky thinking is really crucial to... Progress in any way we can sort of salvage the idea of progress in this time. Without boredom, there's no ingress for the imagination. I mean, it's obviously the case that necessity is the mother of invention, that we adapt in response. But I mean, really, if we're going to look at this in terms of evolutionary dynamics, mutations aren't happening. In a kind of intelligent response, as far as we can tell, they're happening randomly because there's an opportunity for them to happen w- without an immediate and fatal repercussion. It's, I mean, it's obviously more multidimensional than just necessity versus opportunity because, you know, necessity might be constraining things along one axis or at one scale, while opportunity creates a channel through which imagination can flow at a different scale or along a different axis. But the point is, a lot of us have known for some time that things need to change, but haven't been able to do so, have been forced by the conditions of our lives to lock into this very rapid and kind of insane reactive cycle. And here, paradoxically, amidst this planet-scale crisis... We are given a chance to break out of this giant conversation, go off, huddle, contemplate, step out of the headlocked cubicle insanity and out on a walk in the sun, move our bodies, allow that movement to drive new ideas, new perspectives I saw travelandleisure.com had a list of 12 museums that you can visit through virtual reality and explore entirely from home, which is amazing. And I think, you know, if ever there were an opportunity for people to learn, to make the most of this interregnum, I mean, now is the time to really begin work on something that can contribute in a powerful meaningful way to the public good and to whatever comes next i mean i think the the real jerks in this situation have made themselves obvious these are the people that want the machine to keep grinding us all into powder that don't want businesses closed don't want the economy to take a breather here and reconsider The bender that it's been on for decades. I mean, I guess really, ultimately, I just wanted to tell everybody that I think that the best science available supports a way of making sense of this kind of a crisis that is ultimately empowering. And that helps us see past this narrow emphasis on an emergency mindset, which admittedly is crucial, you know, we should not attempt to bypass the severity and the intensity of this situation. But at the same time, to see it in a larger context, to see it as a potential restoration of healthier dynamics, at the level of the individual, the family, the community, the society, the planet, To see crisis as an opportunity, as a moment, a window, an invitation to innovate. I mean, really the best possible outcome I can imagine from this is to witness all of the creative and intellectual capital that has been shackled to pointless, stupid, undignified work for our entire lives to rise up and create something new and beautiful together emergencies often elicit the best of our humanity you know a concern for the true priorities of our existence these are moments when we are called to act on what really matters and to contribute to our communities and to the legacy that we pass on at a time when good ideas are unusually quick to spread. So that's my rant. With any luck, campus closure at SFI means I'll have more time to get into the production and publication of this podcast. And I know that I have some really interesting and timely conversations coming up recorded this week for both Future Fossils and for Complexity With epidemiologists and various deep thinkers and practitioners that are helping people make sense of these times. So I'll keep you posted about all of that. Everything I've talked about in this show, I've got the links in the show notes at uh, slash future fossils, or you can just search for Future Fossils podcast. If you want to contribute to collective sense making about this, we'll be discussing everything that I talked about and probably a whole lot more in the Future Fossils Facebook group or on Twitter at Michael Garfield. You can reach me by email, Podcast at gmail.com. It's a funny time to ask for support for the show, but if you feel like this is helping in any way, I hope you'll consider becoming a Patreon supporter. It would be a dream come true, basically the work of over 15 years of my (laughs) adult life, to be able to support myself on my contributions to the commons, like this show, like the vast amount of volunteer work I put in to social media moderation and so on. So if you have the means, then uh, please head on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and sign up and then you'll get all sorts of exclusive and early access to a vast array of different projects. But of course, you know, no expectations there. And really, you know, anyone sharing the show on social media or reviewing it in Apple podcasts is also pretty helpful. And I thank you, everyone who's been doing that. I'm going to end things a little differently than I would ordinarily and play you out with a song that I've been working on at home. When I have the time (laughs) in the evenings after the baby goes to sleep, it seems appropriate for this episode. It's a song called Always Catching Up about how our efforts to make sense of the world always lag behind the world as it is and how life's just like that. Languages grow at the rhythm of walking pace, and every idea you inhabit is seconds behind your original face. (laughs) Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. It's a draft. Right now I'm updating the draft periodically on a private SoundCloud streaming link, so if you would like to join the listening party and uh, leave your feedback in the player as I prepare a final mix, that would be really helpful, and I'd appreciate it, and I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again and stay safe out there.
1: Walking according to physiologists Is a control for four words Tottling to tottering all of us Always one step from and one step forward But life's just like that Like we're At the rhythm of walking pace Every idea we inhabit i <laughs> Pushing the river that started this song